Hello, my sweet friends. This is Becca. How is your heart today? I want to introduce you to a conversation that Olivia and I got to have with the author and writing teacher, Laura Davis. Laura has authored six books, which have sold over 1.8 million copies worldwide and have been translated into 11 languages. We are thrilled to share this conversation with you as we talk with Laura about her newest book, The Burning Light of Two Stars. Her latest work weaves memoir and fiction together. And in our conversation, we dive deeper into the mother-daughter relationship she experienced growing up, which is the focus of her latest book. Talking with Laura, we came to an even deeper appreciation of the importance of learning the details about the stories we tell ourselves from our childhood memories. An important note, we do discuss some family trauma in this conversation, so just be aware of that. But we are so excited for you to join us in this conversation. And one quick note before we get excited, (laughs) we are excited before we get started, is that the CYP Con is coming up starting November 10th at 4.30 p.m. Eastern. Now you might ask, what is the CYP Con? The Check Your Privilege Convention is an annual four-day virtual learning experience designed to equip co-conspirators like you and I with actionable strategies to overcome the challenges faced living into the work of anti-racism. And this isn't your typical conference. This is an immersive experience, which is designed to inform and really inspire and support and guide you, guide us to live into the work of anti-racism. Our good friend and author, Maisha Hill and her team have created this virtual learning experience and it's created to be accessible for all schedules and all people. The online live sessions will happen in the latter part of each day. And if you can't make a session, that is totally okay. Your ticket gives you access to the recordings of each session. And this year, we're so excited to share with you that Tommy Allgood, who also happens to be a permission to be co-host, will be one of the guides at the CYP Con. The conference starts November 10th. You can purchase tickets the day of the event. For tickets or more information, you can go to checkyourprivilege.co or the link for tickets is in the Permission to Be podcast Instagram bio. Now, without further ado, the conversation with Laura Davis. Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. Let's hit him with the remix. Oh, well, y'all got to change yes. that. Yes. <laughs> what are we doing? Uh, we, we leave our F-bombs in and... Let's tell some stories. As long as white people are bound, the people in power are bound, they're going to keep us bound to the same thing that they're bound to. Out of, uh, the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speak, that I think out of the overflow of the spirit the body does. Why why is that the best that God could offer you? Mike made it very clear that he did not want to get any of these questions beforehand. So he is getting this question live, raw, for the very first time. This is, um, and I feel like art is the expression of the heart where uh, words fail. Oh my goodness, I have tears. Oh, y'all are killing it. Unfiltered. I feel like that's gotta sound strange. Permission to be. 
Uh, actually, my 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 literary agent, when we were talking about what book might I write, he was like, I mean, A Black Man with Hope is an interesting book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Hello, everybody. We've got Olivia and Becca here. Hey, everybody. Tonight, we have the honor of speaking with Laura Davis. Laura is a well-known author of several past books, um, one in particular, The Courage to Heal, which just had its 30th anniversary re-release. And Laura has re-entered the world of publishing for the first time in a couple of decades with a new memoir, The Burning Light of Two Stars, A Mother-Daughter Story. And so um, how I'm connected to Laura, I met her through another Laura, my writing teacher, Laura Lentz. (laughs) And I had the privilege of being a beta reader of the manuscript of the upcoming book. And a big part of the reason I'm such a fan of this work is because it's not the type of book I normally pick up. Um, I'm not a big reader of memoir, and yet I was so engrossed with this 88,000-word manuscript that I devoured it in four days. And that is saying a lot for me because I'm in four different book groups. And so at any given time, I've got four different (laughs) books going. So when hers riveted me and held my attention, I was like, oh my God, this is good writing. And it's not even the kind of book I normally read. So I've been excited about it since I first knew it was coming out. It's the quality of the writing. It's compelling narrative storytelling at its finest. And so for that reason, I asked her to come and chat with us so we could learn from her a little bit about an overview of the book and what led her to return to the publishing world after this absence and to share a little bit of her backstory. So Laura, welcome to Permission to Be. I'm just so happy to be here talking to you. Been looking forward to it a lot. We are so glad to have you. So why don't you start by telling us about yourself, who you are, what you do, what you've done. And I know that's a big story, but just wherever you want to go with that. Well, I, you know, I think that the, the one thing that has been continuity in my whole life is that I've been in love with words since I was a little girl. Mm-hmm. And I've used words, you know, at first um, as a way to understand myself, as a way to seek answers, um, to try to find the truth, to speak the truth, absolutely, um, to break silence, to confront people, um, to grieve and and to make my most critical life decisions. And they usually happen on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the public sphere, um, which I've been doing since I was a teenager, I've been published. Um, I've used words to provoke, um, to inform, to agitate, to educate, mm-hmm. um, to tell stories, to entertain, and to inspire. Um, and I um, I published my first book, uh, the Courage to Heal, which I co-wrote with Ellen Bass. I was, I was only 31 years old when that book came out, and it, it was um, a book about the process of healing from child sexual abuse. And it was mm. we wrote it, we published it in 1988, um, which was it was the first book of any kind that really talked about how to heal from trauma, from this kind of trauma. And it was wow. the first book that really gave hope to um, survivors of child sexual abuse, and it took off in this way that just totally blew me away. I mean, I when it, when we were writing the book, I didn't even think it would get published. You know, we had a, hmm. a book contract with Harper and Rowe, mm-hmm. um, and I just thought the book was too radical, and that when our editor saw it, they would reject it. Oh, wow. I was, like, certain of that. Because it was, 
you know, basically really confronting the patriarchy. It was, uh, yeah. yep. it was poking a hole in, in male violence and male domination. Uh, the book was full of lesbians. I mean, you know, I just thought, oh my God, you know, they're never going to want to publish this. Um, but they did. And it, it became this incredible grassroots bestseller, just passed from woman to woman to woman to woman. And this was pre-internet. So, you know, there was nobody was posting about it on Facebook right. or Instagram. There was yeah. no email. I mean, this was like really word of mouth in the most basic way. Um, and it was, it was for me, really um, a shocking experience and a um, humbling experience to have created something or co-created something that had this huge impact. I mean, it really started the the incest survivor empowerment movement of the, mm. the late 80s and early 90s it's it's the precursor of me too and um it was it was an amazing kind of heady experience and also um challenging because i was young i wasn't really i didn't have the the kind of spiritual grounding or the emotional stability okay. to handle that kind of sudden like meteoric notoriety right. for the worst thing that had ever happened to mm-hmm. me and I also was like deep in my own healing process. You know, I was going to therapy a couple times a week. Yeah. I was obsessed with sexual abuse. I was having flashbacks. I was, I mean, it, I was a mess. Wow. And I, I wasn't really, um, but you know, there I was, I was in this position where wherever I went, women would come up to me and tell me their abuse stories, including like I'd be at the movies and someone would follow me into the bathroom. Oh my God. Oh and, my. and and it was just, you know, I, I remember I used to lie about who I was, my name, what I did, you know, and and then, you know, eventually I was able, but I, and then I had to, um, there was like, so there was the public me, mm-hmm. um, who was yeah. this, this um, icon, I guess, you know, for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of women. And then there was my private life, which was still really falling apart because, I had a lot of healing to do still. So mm. at that point in my life, there was a lot of um, a split, I guess you would mm-hmm. say. The other thing that happened at that time is that the, the book... Uh, the public, my decision to publish that book and then its notoriety. So I was, you know, on national TV talking about my grandfather's sexual abuse and it really created a huge rift uh, with my mother and her whole side of the family. Mm. So it was sort of like I gained the world and I lost my family. Mm. So that was where I was at in my early 30s. Um, I wrote a few more books about sexual abuse and and then I got to a point where it was sort of at the peak of my you, I guess you could call it success with this, is I left. I walked away from it because I didn't want to be identified anymore, have my myself identified with being an incest survivor. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that I wasn't, but I didn't want that to be my identity in the world. And I, I had done enough healing that I wanted other things in my mm-hmm. life. You know, I wanted a personal mm-hmm. life. I, I really mm-hmm. wanted a family. I... Yeah. Um, I wanted to see who I could be as a healed person and not always have this be my identity. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of stepped out into this void of not knowing what was next. Um, and, and, you know, and then I, from there, I wrote several other books and I, I wrote a book about my books kind of correlated with what I was doing in my life. So, you know, yeah. when I had um, my first son, I teamed up with a great parent educator and we put together a book called Becoming the Parent You Want to Be. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, when I started working on uh, reconciling the relationship with my mother, I wrote a book called I Thought We'd Never Speak Again, The Road from mm-hmm. Estrangement to Reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and then during that time, I, after The Courage to Heal came out, I started working with a lot of writers. So for the last... 25 years. I have coached writers. and But what I really love is working with writers in groups, mm-hmm. um, you know, in classes and retreats in workshops and creating a safe place where people can use writing as a tool for healing, for transformation, for self-expression and, and for community building. I was going to say community. Yeah, that's yeah exactly. definitely community. Uh, you know, I don't work with people individually and that's mm-hmm. why. I never was interested in really being a coach or a, you know, I never yeah. wanted to be a therapist. People suggested I get trained to be a therapist. I didn't want to. I like groups. Mm-hmm. I like group dynamics. And I love the synergy that happens when one person tells the truth about their life and they they break silence in some way. And it doesn't have to be trauma. It could be, you know, like in a group, I'm always happy if someone writes about money or sex, or, or these topics that people generally don't write right. about. It's yep. like, suddenly, everyone in the group starts writing about those topics, because it's sort of like, it's okay to write about this here. The freedom. So I, I, that's what I love. I love the um, I love group dynamics, and I, I love creating a safe space for people to use words to heal. And, and I am a writing teacher, but really, I'm a community builder more than anything mm. else. Oh, I love that. That's what, as human beings, we were created to, humanity was created to work together. You yeah. know, that's at the essence of who we are as creatures, as from the beginning, as, you know, even going up as far as evolution, you know, it's always we worked in herds and groups, and, you know, that's how we functioned. Yeah. And I think we've, we, we become isolated, right. you know, and oh. so, um, and, and also, when you are really revealing something about yourself, if even if you're talking to your spouse, your best friend, your sister, your brother, you know, even someone you trust, if they're going to have a reaction, which might be, you can't say that about mom, or, you know, I don't remember it that way. You know, you get any group of siblings together, right? Yeah. Yeah, they do not remember uh, the same event the same way. It's like everybody's like, it didn't, that's not when it happened, you know? Especially if there's a middle child. Yeah. Right. My sister remembers things that my brother and I say never happened. Right. That's right. That's right. Sorry, Olivia, oh, no, what are you going to say? Just, I was just going to say, I didn't. I have been in um, one of Laura's writing groups and then she and I have been in a writing group with the same teacher. And until this whole COVID pandemic thing, just the whole notion of like write together in a group, I didn't really get how that works. But what she's saying about the synergy, I can't tell you how many times, um, you know, we, Mm -hmm. we set aside this quiet time for everybody to go off and write and then we come back and so many people, like she said, are following a, a common theme. So it's like <laughs> there, there is, there's, um, there's something that, um, that happens there. And there is, uh, you know, I don't know, there's something really freeing about being heard, um, and having mm-hmm. a safe space to do that. So I just wanted to, um, to concur with that. And then I wanted to ask a- another question, something I realize I don't know, cause I, I, you know, you had written a previous book about your mother, the one um, I thought we'd never speak again. Um, and then you wrote this memoir. So what made you, can you talk a little bit about 
what what led you to writing this one? <laughs> well, I guess you could say I'm kind of I've been obsessed with my mother. I mean, you know, the first the first time I published about her, I think I was 23 years oh, wow. old, and I, I had this I had this poem that was accepted into an anthology by Tilly Olson, and which was you know really cool for a young writer. Yeah, and it was about my mother, you know. And so I've written about her a lot, but the the um, the I thought we'd never speak again is not really about my mother and I. I mean, I, there's a there was a little thread in that book. It's like a I don't know three hundred fifty page yeah. book, and there were maybe ten pages or twelve pages that told little bits of the story okay. with her. But mostly for that book, um, it was a how to okay. book, you know. So it was very different. And I I interviewed tons of people. Like I interviewed um, Vietnam veterans who went back to Vietnam. I interviewed mm-hmm. restorative justice, like you know, a woman who's uh, sister was killed by a drunk driver, and I interviewed her about the experience of going into this mediation in prison. Um, I interviewed, you know, people who were, um, there was a camp that had brought together Israeli and Palestinian teenagers. Mm-hmm. And so I interviewed them about what that experience was like and how they structured it. And then a lot of just um, family, family dynamics too, you know, people who were not speaking to X, Y, or Z person. And, mm-hmm. and some of them had what you would call maybe a successful reconciliation mm-hmm. in, in whatever we kind of stereotypically think that is. And others were able to make peace, you know, basically inside themselves, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, where a relationship with the other person just was not possible because they were too toxic or violent mm-hmm. or uh, disturbed or, you know, abusive so it just wouldn't be healthy to have any kind of actual connection but there's still a pathway to feeling that sense of resolution mm-hmm. with the relationship so that book was about kind of all these different pathways to reconciliation okay. and I was I was motivated to write it because my mother and I were in a process of coming back together after a long estrangement right um, and you know the thing that's interesting is that at that time, uh, I mean, my mother and I even did, um, we, we had like a, um, what's it called? A photo shoot, uh-huh. you know, the two of us to, to promote that <laughs> book. And she supported me in the writing of that book. And, and I think I had this feeling like we really had resolved mm-hmm. things, you know, we had reconciled. But then, you know, things really change. You know, it's like in the, in the le- length of a life that a lot of um, things come at you that you don't anticipate right. and and for me the, the way that the the memoir opens basically is that I'm in, at home and um, I've just gotten over a year of cancer treatment I'm like ready for my life to settle down and to just have some normalcy and my mother calls she's 80 years old she lives in New Jersey I live in California which is as far mm-hmm. away from her as I could get uh, without crossing an ocean and she announces she's moving to Santa Cruz which is my town uh, for the rest of her life. Mm. And mm. so that's that's where the story starts. So, you know, I end up, you know, having this mother where there's this still really unresolved history, like underneath the surface of, yeah. you know, the peace we've mm-hmm. made, uh, there's a lot of <laughs> buried rage and unresolved things. And she comes and then suddenly the proximity of her living right there. Um, and then she develops dementia and she's, got all the symptoms, you know, rage and uh, anxiety and, yeah. you know, and and, she, and her filters are gone. So like all her bad habits come back and, and I was triggered all the time. So the book is really about that journey from the time she announces that she's coming until the end of her life. And, you know, the question for me was, can I take care of her? Mm-hmm. Do I want to take care of her? And 
can I be the daughter she needs me to be, despite the fact that there's this big unresolved history? And, you know, I don't think our our situation was rather extreme, Mm -hmm. I would say, but, you know, I think there are millions of people who are in this position where they have um, a parent or someone who has betrayed them on some level, maybe not as dramatically as my situation, but in some way, and they're faced with, what do I do in that person's time of need? Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's it's a really challenging situation. So that's what this book is about. Um, what do we do in those situations? And, and is it possible to, to open your heart to someone who has betrayed you in the past? Do you think that, do you think the reconciliation would have happened the way it had, had she not moved across the country? I think geography was super important. Um, Absolutely. Because, you know, when we, there was a period of time when we were, had been very estranged and every interaction we had would, you know, one of us would be raging and the other, that would be her. Mm -hmm. And I would be withdrawing. Mm -hmm. That was me. That was my (laughs) MO. You know, I would be hiding or withdrawing or Mm -hmm. sulking or going silent um, (laughs) and basically just putting up a wall all around me. Um, and, and then, you know, we'd, ha- or we'd have, we'd have a visit and we'd have like one good day mm-hmm. and then things would completely disintegrate, <sighs> you know, and I'd be like cursing those goddamn <laughs> <Yep>. non-refundable <laughs> plane tickets, yep. you know, cause yep. I sure couldn't afford another ticket. Probably she paid, she paid for my ticket anyway, because you know, <laughs> of where I was in my life. So, you know, it was like that. And, and so we never really there was no chance to build any new experiences. And she was the one, actually, who said to me, you know, we need to do something about this distance between us because until we could start building some new experiences together in the present, mm-hmm. all we're going to have is this screwed up past. Right. All we're going to have is this bad history. And so, you know, she started actually initially, and again, she she announced this to me. This was years before she came for good, that she was going to start coming out to California in the winter for like, you know, be like a snowbird, get out of the snowy New Jersey Mm -hmm. and come to California for two or three months. And she rented her own place. I mean, she never stayed with me. There was like, there was no way that was going to (laughs) happen. I think for either of us, I think neither of us was really able to have that kind of proximity. And she would live nearby and she was uh, such a um, dynamic person. She always had tons of activities and friends and she had three calendars to, because of all the things she was involved in this class and that class. And this, she was an actor or she was on a, in a play. And, um, wow. I almost had to make an appointment to see her, but she, she <laughs> started coming. And at first I was like really begrudging about the whole thing. I didn't help her at all, but you know, it, it started that, that began when I had my son, Eli and, and Eli is now 28 years mm-hmm. old. Hmm. So when he was born, I think we both, and I think this is true for so many people, you know, that when you have children, it changes things. I mean, and I'm not saying it's always appropriate. I don't at all want to say it's always appropriate to rebuild a a damaged relationship because some people are just, as I said before, really toxic or abusive and you Mm -hmm. don't want yourself or your kids around them. But Mm -hmm. that was not my mother. Mm -hmm. Um, She just was incredibly difficult. And she had a lot of good qualities, too. And I think when I had him, it was much more of a motivation to, on both our parts, Mm -hmm. to want to try to make things better. Mm -hmm. I wanted him to have her as a grandmother, and she really wanted him as a grandson. And so that's when she started visiting. And, um, you know, at first it was really difficult. You know, she'd, she'd say, you know, 
She didn't like it that I let the kids express their emotions. She said they were spoiled rotten. (laughs) What do you you act like you live in a barn? You know, (laughs) I would when I had my daughter and I would, you know, I'm in California. I would nurse her in public, Mm -hmm. you know, my mother would be. be mortified, you know, that I would just whip out my breast (laughs) and nurse her, you know, and I would be mortified, you know, that she was, she was a closet smoker and she drank too much. And I mean, there was, Mm. I had all my, we had, you know, we could get triggered so quickly. Just bounced Um, off each other. But, you know, by the time she'd come out here for like seven or eight years, it actually started to change because the the positive ledger started building up. Um, Mm. And we we started to enjoy each other and we focused on the things that we had in common. And at first it wasn't very many, mm-hmm. you know, um, but but it started to build. And, and I feel like that was because she took that risk to cross that geographical bridge, that divide between mm-hmm. us. So it really did make a huge difference. And at the end of her life, the proximity made a huge difference too, kind of in the opposite direction. It made things like I couldn't get away from right. her. Hmm. Um, both geographically and also because her needs just were escalating. And I was, I was in the sandwich generation. I had two teenagers and I had this elderly mother right. who's had dementia, who denied it and wanted to live alone, but was not safe oh. living alone. And I mean, it was just, and you know, there are, there are so many people in that situation, yeah. um, just feeling squeezed. I felt like I was in this vice, um, mm. but I also wanted to, if possible, I wanted to fulfill this promise, I guess, you know, of taking care of her. It was really hard. There's one, there's one thing you said, um, you, you said, you know, we had all these, I don't want to say negative, whatever, adversarial, um, fill in the appropriate adjective experiences. And you knew that if you didn't build new ones, um, then all you'd have it to hold on to is an, is the, the negative adversarial ones. Um, do you feel like, did you realize that in real time or do you look back on it in hindsight and realize that's what we were doing? Mm. No, I think I, I think I realized it in, in real time. And, and I mean, she talked about mm-hmm. it and I think, I think it was, it was true. And um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it was interesting experience writing the memoir because the first, the early drafts of it um she was more the villain Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I was the wronged one. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew that, I knew that was just a first draft. I mean, that was like, that was my starting point, but I, it was really important to me that we both be fully human and fully Mm -hmm. flawed Mm -hmm. in the way I presented us. And that actually has been the best, like I'm happiest when someone reads it and they say, you know, on this page, I hated you and I was rooting for your mother, Mm -hmm. you know, and on this page, man, she was a bitch Mm -hmm. and I was rooting for you. (laughs) Like, I can't believe she did that. And, and that, that's what I wanted, you know, and, and I didn't want to come off as, I I don't like reading books where someone is, it's like a vendetta Uh and -hmm. someone is, it's a revenge book. I just find that totally boring. And I, mm. I really am hard on my students who are going in that direction. And it, it may be a phase in the process of writing, but you can't stop there. Right. Mm. You know, I mean, yes, it's great to rant. It's great to write a rant and to blame and to hate and all that on the page is really important, but it's not the end point of something you want to publish. One of the things that I think, I, I, well, I, I believe we all filter life through the lens of our experience. And coming from a 
a, a corporate career in human resources where my whole job was about understanding people. I could do that with other people, but then, you know, when it's your parents, well, that's, (laughs) that's all, that's a whole other story. And part of what hit me, um, about it, there was, I, I had a time, I guess it was probably about a year after my mother died and all of a sudden I just started replaying so many of the things that just stuck in my craw and it was like something had happened with one of my own kids. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh. And I could see it from her perspective, but she was already gone. And I remember, you know, my husband at one point was like, are you okay? Because I cried every day for like a month because it was just like, all of a sudden I got it. Um, And so one of the things that I have found recently as I study trauma is I've just, I'm just a much more curious person instead of what is wrong with you, Laura? It's, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. And right, as a child, right. it's just like, well, you know, my mom's being rude. My mom's being obnoxious. My mom's being insensitive. But then I started to evaluate her backstory. She lost her mother at 18 months. She was raised by her 70 something year old grandmother who took care of her. But, you know, she missed a whole lot of that nurturing mother ex- mothering experience because my grandmother had a toddler <laughs> dumped on her when she was fully retired. And again, when, when I started to play back some of the things that I thought was just being distant and disconnect through that lens, I saw the whole thing completely differently. And so what I feel like you did a very effective job of in this book, um, especially when you get into, well, you don't want to give away details, but there's a certain scenes that you paint where you allow us a glimpse into why your mom is being extra. (laughs) Um, And then, Uh you know, being the daughter, I understood your perspective all along because, you know, that's kind of the role I was in, um, in, in my own relationship. But I feel like you did a very effective job of showing that there are two sides to this story. Um, There was hurt on both sides. There was anger on both sides. There was misunderstanding on both sides. and it did not at all come across like, you know, any one person was being blamed. And that to me was part of the beauty of it. So I, I'm just curious, Olivia, and I don't, you may not want to talk about this, but I'm, I'm just mm-hmm. curious of like one example of something you realized about your mother. Like were you, one of those moments of like insight where you was like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Okay. I, I got one for you immediately. So at the end of her life, my mother, um, had um, multiple autoimmune disorders. Um, She was in and out of the hospital. And sometimes she could just be downright just just obnoxious. And and one one example that comes to mind is one day she had called me over and asked me to go get something at the store for her. And I was trying to clarify which brand she wanted. And I said, I just want to make sure so that I don't go to the store and, you know, get the wrong brand. And, you know, she started yelling and screaming at me. And I just remember getting furious and picking up my keys and walking out, going, you know, saying, you know, look, I'm trying to do you a favor. And, you know, my father walking behind me trying to explain, you know, she really just doesn't feel that great. And so the next day she called and apologized and said, you know, I was just in a lot of pain. I shouldn't have taken it out on you. Um, I was just speaking out of my pain and I'm sorry. And my response at the time was, you know, I am a grown however old I was at the time, 43-year-old woman, and you just think you can talk to me like a child at any time. Okay. So fast forward to um, 
May of this year, I had a situation where I had, I didn't know what it was at the time, but it was a necrotic nerve attached to infected pulp. And um, I was in 10 days of the most excruciating pain I've ever experienced in my life. Um, I was on hydrocodone, Motrin 800. It was not working. Um, and it never stopped. And I was horrible <laughs> because everything just set me on edge. You could say, what time is it? I was in so much pain and I was so miserable. Um, and so once we got beyond that and I went and had oral surgery, I had to go back and apologize. And it was one of those aha moments of, oh, wow, sometimes you can be so caught up in the misery of your own physical pain that you are just a total and complete bitch to your loved ones. Um, but I didn't, and I expected my loved ones to, well, you, you know, I slept on the couch for 10 days. I didn't even go upstairs. Of course, you're supposed to understand. And, and it was just the realization that, but you didn't extend that same grace in the moment. That's just one example that's come back to me recently. Um, my mother died 11 years ago, so I don't remember what the Mem trigger memory trigger was mm -hmm. at the time that had me crying for a month. I've had several of those moments um, where, uh, uh, again, it's it's so much easier to judge what somebody else is doing without until you're in that situation yourself. Mm -hmm. So we want to extend judgment to somebody else, but then we want grace extended to us. And so, um, like I said, she's, 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 she died in 2011. So I don't remember what the trigger was um, in 2012 that set me off down that path, but this is just one example of it that has come up for me yeah. recently. Yeah, those those moments are really hard but good, mm -hmm. you know. When we have to face that uh our rigidity um and our, our judgments um are not wholly impactful. One of the things that was uh really intense for me in the process, it took me 10 years to write this book, is that my mother and I had had corresponded. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was, again, before email, so these were all handwritten letters, and I saved every letter I ever wrote to her, including um, journals that had, like, first drafts, like, angry, ranting first drafts that were so oh, wow. different than the careful letters I eventually sent, mm -hmm. yeah. and I saved everything she ever sent me. And we both, we wrote these long handwritten letters, and it probably, from the time I was, like, I don't know, 17, 18. I left home at 17. So probably 18 or 19 till I was in my early 30s. And, and they sort of petered mm -hmm. out at that point because that's when we kind of started to connect again. But And it was really interesting because I had always said that my mother and I didn't speak for seven years. Like that was my mantra. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I looked at these letters and the letters happened the whole time. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So there were, and then I started reading the letters and there were so many times what was on the written page mm -hmm. contradicted my storyline. Wow. And that's one of the themes in the book is just how um, we we create these stories about our lives mm -hmm. and, and then we repeat them over and over again. You know, and it becomes like how we present ourselves to the world or yep. to an intimate person or to a friend or I'm the person who, and we, we cart out these stories and they become like, <laughs> this is really going to date me, grooves in a record. Right. Um, they're that, coming back. Yeah, they're coming back, right. <laughs> um, 
and we we hold on to those stories and they they are not necessarily accurate. I mean, they're just, Mm -hmm. they're the way we frame that story and then we just get entrenched in it. And so that was very humbling. I had many moments of crying and distress and shame and shock when I read some of the things that told a different story than the story I told. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was kind of an amazing experience. Um, and, and I included some of those letters, um, in fact, I at first I wanted to do the whole book in letters. When I found those letters, I wanted to um, just have a whole epistolary book yeah, that would yeah. include those letters and then new letters that I would write to my dead mother. Mm-hmm. And I actually wrote a whole draft of the book that took about a year. And before I realized, people started reading it and saying, you know, it's not very engaging. <laughs> like, it, it feels like you two are having this private conversation and I'm not. I, I had many false starts with this book. I tried to make it a play. I tried to make it a book of letters, you know, before I finally settled on a memoir um, and just had to write the damn mm-hmm. thing. And I, and I, <laughs> I did keep I did, did keep some of the letters, even though many editors said, get rid of them. And I'm really glad I kept some. They're, they're a very small thread, but it's really the only place my mother gets to speak in her own voice, right. you know, not through the lens of me recreating her on the mm-hmm. page because it's her actual words in those letters. Hmm. And some of the letters are like hostile and horrible. And some of them are like so loving and kind. That is so deep what you said about um, your own words contradicting the story you had in your mind. Um, There's a a big jumbo crate upstairs. um, And because of this conversation, I'm going to go through it. But um, it's full of journals. And, and my husband's like, yeah, I had them, had them stored out there. Some of the times over the years when I didn't understand you, I would go, I mean, go pick them up and read them. And he has latitude. To do that. <laughs> and how are you with that? I, I was totally fine with it. I mean, it's totally fine. I mean, cause some of this, I mean, there are uh-huh. some of them date back to high school. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't at all a violation wow. of my privacy. Um, like, like that, it, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't like that, but, um, so it, there is literally like this big jumbo, um, crate when he showed me where they were that I got. It's not a crate, you know, a big jumbo plastic tub that I got from Target. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so right. now I, um, now I'm just going to have to go like randomly pick up some and read. Um, cause now you, you sparked my curiosity about what stories am I telling in my mind about how things were 20 years ago that are going to be contradicted <laughs> by, by what I said in real time. Yeah, when I did it, it was um, really hard, mm-hmm. you know, because I, for one, I found that I'm not a big journal keeper. I'm not like a lot of writers. They keep journals for, you know, their whole lives. And I, I've done it on and off and I haven't really kept a journal in a lot, many years, mm-hmm. but I pretty much only wrote when I was depressed oh, wow. or unhappy. Mm-hmm. So the journals re- reflect a lot of misery. Yeah. And also, you know, I was reading about my 20s and it was like, I was working in these restaurants and I was a lot of cocaine binges and like putting myself in these humiliating situations with men. It was before I came out, you know, mm-hmm. as a lesbian. And I, you know, I just, there was so much humiliation mm-hmm. and it was so painful to read about how lost I was. And it was so hard to find empathy for the young woman I was. Mm-hmm. And it was really painful to read those journals. I mean, I would like bargain with myself, like, okay, you read for, you sit in the chair for half an hour and then there's a bar of chocolate, really good dark chocolate <laughs> inside, you know, or, and, and I often would just pass out and go to sleep because it was just too painful to read, mm-hmm. you know, or dissociate. And, but I just, I kept going and I had these little post-its and I would take notes as I went along 
um, because I felt like I had to, to write a memoir. I had to get to know who I was at that age again, because that was really a critical time. And, but boy, it was painful. Um, and I thought, then there was the whole thing about like, what am I going to do with these? And I, now they're in, they're in a, one of those tubs, <laughs> just like you, the plastic, mine are turquoise plastic. And there's a big, big sign taped on the front that said, burn these if I die. <laughs> because, I, you know, I, I, I wasn't ready to throw them out. And I, I do know a lot of people who've burnt their journals because they don't want other people to read them. And it's like, I don't want my children to read these journals because it's just like, I feel like it would be such a burden. I mean, they're mm. old enough now that I don't need to have any, you know, I don't need, they're, they're young adults, mm-hmm. so I don't need to protect mm-hmm. them. Uh, for And they've, you know, they've read a lot of, I've told them a lot of stuff about my life, but I just, I just wouldn't want them to read it. I, mm. you know, I just wouldn't. Although, you know, it's interesting when my father died and I was his executor. This was, he died like, I don't know, 18 years ago or something. Okay. I, I was his executor and he left behind this journal. And uh, my parents, uh, my, my dad left our family when I was 13 or 14. Uh, in, we were in New Jersey and he came to California to become a hippie. <laughs> and to um, he went to Esalen and went to all these like human growth workshops and he took a lot of acid and I mean he was a hippie uh, he was having a good time he was having a good time it was like it was about like 1970 uh-huh. you know so it was just like dropout kind of thing um and he when he went to Esalen it was the summer he left us and he never came back so mm-hmm. I was like 13 14 years old he had this very detailed journey journal about this month-long program at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, which was some kind of like encounter group, which was very big at the Mm -hmm. time. And I found that journal and I was, so I probably read it in my forties. It was fascinating. I was so grateful that I got to read it. It gave me so much insight into Mm -hmm. him and his (sighs) upbringing and his background. And um, I was super grateful. And my mother actually wrote a lot and I had, you know, when she died, I, I had a lot of her writings. It was really, really valuable. To just mm. understanding, you know, yeah. I mean, there, there's all the the, the uh, epigenetics of where we come from, you yeah. know, in terms of generations and trauma. and But there's also just the family history is, it was really great to fill in a lot of gaps um, that I would never have mm. known otherwise. So in that way, I kind of want to keep my journals, but, you know, I <laughs> sort of want to have the best of both worlds. Well, yes, yeah, if, if, if something ever happens... I have to think about it. now. Now I really need to go see what what what's in there. But um, <laughs> I think, um, and, and mine like yours, it's not it's not a consistent thing. I mean, so th- they're all over the place. I'm not a consistent. I get up every morning and keep a journal, so it's consistent for six months. And you know, mm-hmm. but they like I said, there are some. There's one in particular that goes all the way back to um, to high school. But I I do think it gives a glimpse. Um, because I've had to piece together, um, as I've learned more about my mother after the fact, so much of her life makes sense to me now. And um, I'm in a book group that we've spent the last six months reading about intergenerational trauma and how it shows up. And um, it, it's just like, Eureka, um, some of this stuff I wish I had known before. Um, but you know, my husband always yeah. tells me you learn when you learn, when you know better, you do better. You learn mm-hmm. what you learn mm-hmm. when you learn it. You know, we, we can't, um, we can't mm-hmm. turn back the clock, but it, it, it definitely, it helps to understand that. I think a lot of times we forget that our parents were whatever age we're at at that time at one time as well. 
you know what I mean? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. So it's, it's like, okay, um, at one point, you know, my mother was 20, she was 30, she was 40, she was all those ages, but, you know, she was always 25 years older than me. There was, there was a, um, w- there's one little section in the, in the book where I talk about taking my daughter um, to college. Mm-hmm. She, it's her second year of college and she was going to school on the East Coast. So we didn't see her very much. And the first year uh, when I took her, my mother had just died like six weeks before. So it was like huge, you know, I just lost mm-hmm. my mother and then I'm losing my mm-hmm. daughter who was the last child yeah. so becoming an empty oh. nester. Oof. And it was just really devastating when she left, even though I wanted her to go. But then the second year I dropped her off and I didn't feel anything. Like I, I was waiting to feel mm-hmm. devastated and actually I felt mm-hmm. free. And it was like, <laughs> it was like, oh, I actually really like having my own life. I've been taking care of children for 25 <laughs> years and and my mother for, you know, eight years or whatever. And and now I have this freedom and I suddenly got it that my mother felt the mm-hmm. same, that when I would come to visit her, whether it was like a horrible visit or a good visit or we were screaming at each other or enjoying each other, she was happy when I got back on the plane and went home and she got to go back to her own life. And it's like, suddenly I just, it was like this huge realization, like, you were real. Mm-hmm. You, you weren't just a foil for right. me. You were real. You had your own life. You know, she was a, a, a daughter, a sister, an actor, um, a teacher, a social worker. She, she had all these identities that had nothing to do with me. That part. And mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't get that. Well, actually, I, that was that happened, I think I was 58 years old. So it took me a long time to finally see her as really human and that I was just part of her life. Hmm. Whereas to me, she was like, she was so larger than life always. She was this huge figure. Um, And that was really a major turning point for me. Hmm. Do you think that the trauma that you experience or that, you know, just we as humans in general, we hold on to... It, it causes us to linger and take longer to come into those spaces of seeing our parents as human, if that makes sense. Because, for example, I'm just thinking about the trauma. Sometimes we're left in survival or we act out of survival mode. And so when we're responding to our parents, even though we're maybe 20 years past the trauma and they're still in front of us. We're not seeing their humanity. We're still responding to the trauma that they were either participated in or allowed to be. You know, does that make sense? And so sometimes I feel yeah. like that that gives us a hang up. You know, there, there's, um, there's, a, there's a joke in, in Buddhist circles, which is, you know, if you think you're enlightened, go home and spend the weekend with your parents. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so yeah, I, I think it's um, I, I think it's very very challenging, and that that there's yeah, I think I think that kind of um, traumatic experience we hold on to it. For me, I just I saw my mother as dangerous, hmm. and I and she was dangerous to me at many points in my life. Um, but I continued to hold her in that position even after I was emancipated, mm-hmm. independent, uh, financially, you know, independent from her and um, having my own life, my own family. Um, but I, there was still a way that when I saw her, I thought of danger. And then I would 
I would look for things that reinforced that trope. Yeah. yeah. Instead of looking for the good, I, 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 and that's something I had to confront. I, instead of looking for the good, I would reinforce all my negative feelings towards her. Like, ah, that proves it, see? You yeah. know, instead of like, oh, we just had a wonderful moment and building on the positive. And that was something um, my partner, uh, Karen, really helped me with. She, she loved her mother-in-law and she really encouraged me to focus on the good and not mm. always be harping on the bad. But boy, I did not want to let go of that for a very long time. When you say you saw her as a danger, how do, how do you mean that? You mean like an emotional danger? I saw her as, I mean, the way I think I described it was she was like a spider with this web and she was just trying to draw me in. And I, I felt like she would devour mm -hmm. me, mm. you know, and that wasn't very realistic when I was an adult. But I mean, I think there was still this residue of feeling like, like she was just this overpowering force like this tsunami coming at me and I had no power, even mm. though I had plenty of, you know, agency at that point in my life. But there was still, it was still a lingering belief underneath the surface that, that influenced how I acted towards her um, and how I thought about her and um, how I criticized her. Mm. I think that's part of what, um, there was a time when, um, in, in one of my writing classes where we, we did this thing where you write about your mother and my opening sentence was as a little girl, I adored my mother as a teenager and young adult. I resented my mother in middle age. I understand my mother. Yeah, that's nice. And, um, and then I went on to, you know, uh, now, now when we get off of here, I'm going to have to go find the essay and reread it. But um, that's what it seems like you kind of, you know, went full circle um, with that um, in that I felt this way, then I felt this way. And then I finally came full circle. I guess the, the one other thing that I'd like to hear you expound on, because you, you were clear at the beginning that we were able to reconcile and through a very challenging process that took place over the final years of her life, we came back to wholeness and that's not going to be everybody's story. But what do you think are the elements that are important or necessary for that type of reconciliation to take place? Well, first there's, there's a lot of different kinds of reconciliation, Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, that kind of reconciliation, I think, you know, if you're, if you're really estranged from someone, you may long for, um, the kind of thing where you have this deep conversation, everything is out on the table, the person acknowledges the way they hurt you, they apologize, you have this come to this deep understanding, and then you go on and, and either you develop for the first time or reclaim this kind of intimate safe connection. I mean, I think that's the fantasy. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's like the deathbed reconciliation scene in the movies. Mm, right. Um, it's actually really rare for that to happen. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it doesn't. It's, it's, if it happens, you're, you're incredibly fortunate. Um, but, but a lot more reconciliation is something like um, agreeing to disagree. Like, for mm -hmm. instance, with my mother, there was this huge turd in the middle of the room, you know, which was that I said her father abused me and she said mm -hmm. I was making it up. And that it wasn't true. And for many years, I was insistent and waiting and hoping and 
wishing that she would finally, you know, acknowledge that. And she was mm-hmm. hoping for many years that I would recant, which was it was like mm-hmm. way too late for that. I'd been on national TV talking about this and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, sold two million books talking about it. So it was too late for that. Um, and so in that first stage of our reconciliation, we basically agreed to disagree, that this was mm-hmm. an area we were going to stop trying to convince the other person. I mean, I think like that's that's very germane right now when you think about like the political divides in so many families. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, mm. if you want to, I mean, maybe you choose not to have a relationship with that person, but if you do, there's a way that like you cannot talk about politics, you know, or you cannot, you can't talk about the election. And, and maybe it's mm-hmm. just like, I just can't be around this person. But maybe there's like, maybe you really like to go fishing together, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe you um, you love to cook together, or maybe you you both love movies, or maybe there's, there's some little thing that you could share where there's still some kind of thread of connection. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, there's there's that level where you, you agree to disagree and you build a relationship around it. Um, and then there's, you know, the situation where one person changes, like us, you know, I change because I've done a lot of work on myself and I no longer need what I needed before. And, and mm-hmm. I gain that kind of perspective that we've been talking about, right? It's almost like flying up to much higher and looking down and seeing the much bigger generational picture and the picture of who that person was beyond you and from their parents and their parents' parents and the trauma that's been carried down and you start to um, see a bigger picture and sometimes that enables you to have uh, a relationship with them where your expectations are very low, you know. And then, and then sometimes people get to the point where they can do that so that they could do things like go to the same wedding, you know, mm-hmm. or be in the same room without just wanting to throw up, you know. And and sometimes that's as good as it could get. And then there's like the the last kind of reconciliation, which is you know probably the least the one people want the least is that it's really impossible to have mm-hmm. any direct contact or relationship with that person because the safest, most appropriate, sane choice is separation mm-hmm. and distance uh, because, you know, if the person is, there, there's just no possibility for a lot of different kinds of reasons, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's trauma or mental illness or addiction or, um, you know, violence, there's there's a lot of reasons why you just, it's, you, you can't. But even then, I think it's possible to do that inner work of coming to terms with who that person is and mm-hmm. reconciling with them on the inside and, and actually getting to the point of wishing them well, even though you right. may never never speak to them again. And I, I remember this one woman I, I interviewed for the, the first book I wrote on reconciliation, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, I closed the door, but the porch light is always open. I mean, the porch light is oh, always wow. on. Hmm. And I, that just was such a beautiful image to me. It was like, there's a possibility, and in some ways, we never know. Like, I never could have predicted that my mother and I would end up on the trajectory we were. If you'd asked me when I was younger, I would have said absolutely impossible. I mean, that title I used, I thought we'd never speak again, was absolutely mm-hmm. true for me. So I don't remember what your initial question was, but <laughs> that was my long answer. <laughs> oh, it, it was about it was about um, what what do you think is essential for reconciliation? And that was that was oh. a that was a great long answer. I mean, yeah, you just broke it down. There's different types, so you did answer right. And I think you know if you if you want to um, achieve something that's mutual, both people have to want it. And right, um, mm. you know, reconciliation does not happen 
when people are telling you, you have to forgive, you Mm -hmm. have to forget, you have to let go of it. You know, I had so many people saying to me, Laura, even if this did happen, it happened 20 years ago, 25 years ago, aren't you ever going to let it go? Are you going to harp on this for the rest of your life? That is so not helpful. No. You know, I think in order to, the only reason I was able to achieve any reconciliation with my mother is we had a complete separation. And that that I had to, maturity was part of it, you know, just mm-hmm. time going by, but also I needed the autonomy of separating from her. Mm. And it was only from a place of being completely separate that I could mm-hmm. look at her clearly mm-hmm. and start to negotiate the possibility of reconnecting. And I think that's true in most instances. What did self-care look like for you, Laura, going through all of this? Like, I mean, there's different seasons, but I'm just curious maybe if you share some examples of what self-care looked like. I think, you know, I started this whole interview talking about how important community is to me. And I think that's the number one thing is is I've had really good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some friends I've had since first grade, since fourth grade, uh, or since my young adulthood. And, I, you know, I think one of the things is when I when I came out, I was 23 and, you know, my mother's, my mother's typical, uh, very intense response was like, you've confirmed my worst fear about you. You know, that's, that's where she was coming from. And it didn't, you know, I, you could read to see what happened. I mean, she didn't stay there, uh, but that was just her first, her first reaction. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of, a lot of, uh, queer people have to build alternative communities away from their family. And so I mm-hmm. did that. And and those people that, you know, I was really tight with in my early 20s, I'm really tight with a lot of them 40 years later. Mm. And so I think that was always huge for me was having people who really saw me, mm-hmm. really, really saw me and supported me and loved me. So, you know, that was one. Um, I did, I've done a lot of therapy on and off in my life. I've done a lot of body work, things to get re-embodied because, yeah. you know, for, for incest survivors in particular, we leave our bodies. So it's been a lifelong journey to stop dissociating yeah. or at least to know when I'm dissociating and choose to come back. Mm-hmm. So that's been, that's been, and you know, writing as a tool for healing, you know, um, I teach that all the time. So I've been writing for all these years. So writing absolutely has been part of my self-care. And, you know, the one, one of the really great things I got in my family was that we went camping a lot. Um, and I was really taught to love nature. So, um, nature is huge for me. I mean, it is right now. If I'm, if I'm stressed, you know, then I, you know, I just go for a walk. There's, I live, you know, where I live, there's there's the ocean 20 minutes in mm. one direction, there's woods mm-hmm. 15 minutes in the other direction, and I need to be out in nature, and it just replenishes me. So that's that's my church, definitely, is nature. Yes. Yeah. So those are, those are the things. Mm. So, Laura, your book has just come out. What are some places that you suggest, you know, people can purchase your book, especially more on the local bookseller, smaller venue, or there's some places that you really love? Yeah. So um, what I suggest is that if people, that people could go to my website, um, lauradavis.net forward slash chapters. And I'm I'm assuming you could put that in the show notes. Definitely. Um, lauradavis.net forward slash chapters. You could read the first five chapters of the book. So you really get a sense, do I, is this book for me? And in the back of that are links to um, every 
bookseller, you know, the couple independent, big independent booksellers mm-hmm. where you could look up the bookstore, the local independent store in your um, area. You know, there's Barnes and Noble, there's Amazon because you have to sell there too. Um, and, and there's also an audiobook and an ebook. So yeah, all those links are there, but really anywhere books are sold, you can find this book, uh, The Burning Light of Two Stars. And, and to get to read the chapters, lauradavis.net chapters. Um, there's one other thing that I, I created that I'd like to tell people about because I was talking so much about writing and being a writing teacher is that mm-hmm. I created a, a free workbook, which is called Writing Through Courage, um, a 30-day practice. And you could get that on my site as well at lauradavis.net forward slash courage. You know, you don't have to be a writer to enjoy it. It's it, It's got lots of quotes and poems and and really provocative questions, which you could either write about or, you know, discuss over the dinner table. Quick question. Uh, for your audio book, are you by chance reading it? Well, yes, actually. Talk about that, Mara. She, okay. she did something unique. Because that's, that's actually... My favorite is to listen to authors, and I know it's a lot of time and effort, but it's just there's a different energy when you're listening to a book that the author has written or the author is reading their own book. Yeah, I mean, it was it was actually interesting because I um, I decided after having um, six books with big publishers, I decided to go with a hybrid, a small hybrid press for this memoir, and so I hired my own audiobook production company in part because I wanted to possibly do the voice myself. And I had uh, in my twenties, I was a um, a talk show host and a, a news reporter in Alaska, and I love audio, just love it. I mean, that's why I love talking to you because it's just so much fun, fun. to have these yeah. kind of conversations. Um, and so I sent a, basically an audition tape of me reading a couple of the chapters to the head of this um, audiobook company, Becky Geist is her name. And um, I said, I don't want to make a mistake by recording my own audiobook. You know, I don't want to sabotage this project. Do you think it's good enough? And I really wanted her honest response. And she um, emailed me back. She said, you're the most talented amateur I've ever heard. (laughs) So that was great. So what we decided to do, which was my, um, and this is why it was fun going indie with this book, is I got to make all these decisions. And um, which at times was overwhelming. And But what I wanted to do was I wanted to do myself as a character. I wanted to be the narrator. But I I really felt like there was no way I could read my mother. Um, You know, I'm not a trained actor. Yeah, and there yeah. are this this book is extremely character driven, and there's tons of scenes with a lot of conflict and lots and lots of dialogue. So basically, Becky is my mother, and all the other characters. She's my my wife, my three <laughs> kids, the doctor, the nurse, the you know all the other characters. And there's a lot of characters. She reads all of those, and then I read my my own dialogue, my own inner thoughts, um, and the narration. And we we had a setup, you know, very similar to this. We would. Uh, you know, we'd connect on Zoom, and then I I was in my recording booth, she was in her recording booth, um, and we both were recording our tracks into separate, I was using Audacity, she was using something else, and then they all got uploaded, and, you know, this engineer edited it all together. It was a huge undertaking. I mean, huge. I had to build a sound booth. You know, wow. I mean, I had to, because I couldn't afford 150 bucks an hour oh, to yeah. rent a sound studio. So, I mean, this is, I'm, it's, I'm standing there right now. This is my office closet. I had to get these like soundproofing blankets. I had to research them on the internet. Yep. I have this yep. like, um, 
It's like foam, the kind of foam stuff they have on playgrounds under my feet. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I, I sh- my, my son Brian built this shelf for me to put my computer on. I had to get the right microphone. I mean, it was just, it was huge undertaking. Um, and we recorded like, I think like every weekend for three or four hours, a couple of days. I think it took us about 10 sessions Okay. to do the whole book. And I'm, I'm super glad I did it. Oh, I'm super excited to listen. I mean, I was I was hypercritical of myself. I would listen to it and I just think, oh my God, there's two I'm going like you know, or Yeah. Other scenes, other scenes were really good. You know, like and and I I learned about my story things I didn't know just from writing it. Like like I got into the emotion in a way I didn't any other way by reading it. There's something very the the human voice is such a instrument of emotion and there is a lot of emotion in this book and i felt it when i was reading it so i think i think i think people have a very different experience listening to it than reading it themselves it makes so much sense because your body's holding that that's in your muscles your cells your tissues so when you well listeners that you know what that means you gotta (laughs) buy a hard copy and you gotta do audible and even if you do Audible, you don't have to read the hard copy, but we always believe in encouraging everyone to purchase a hard copy to support the writers who do the very hard work. So, um, Laura, can you tell us, you, you know, you shared, are you on social media? Is there ways with people to connect with you there? Or is the best way your website that you mentioned a little bit ago? Well, the best way is my website, but um, I, I'm more active on Facebook than any other um, social media where I dabble more, I guess. And and my, I'm there. I'm the writer's journey. Okay. Okay. Facebook okay. writer's journey and no apostrophe, just all crammed together. Gotcha. And I, it's linked to on my website as well. So, you know, if you go to my website. And this will link it as well. We have to ask her the who would play you in the movie question. <laughs> sure do. I, I hope there's a movie someday because my mother was the most dramatic character <laughs> I have ever known in my entire life. And she would she would she would love from the grave. She would love to. In fact, she <laughs> she she was an actor, as I said. And one time she got to be in a movie. It was like some little movie where she played an Italian grandmother and she was thrilled that she got to do that. So, I mean, she would be ecstatic. I know she'd be like jumping up and down in her urn (laughs) if there was a movie made about her. Um, Bouncing off her shelf, yeah. So, okay, in the movie, I think me, it would be Holly Hunter or Meryl Streep would play me and my mother, absolutely Shirley MacLaine. Oh, no! (laughs) It would have to be Shirley MacLaine. (laughs) I could see that. I could totally see that. Having read the book, I could totally see that. Well, Laura, thank you so much for taking this time to talk to us, to share with us. It has been a pleasure. I've loved this conversation. It was so fun. Um, You're great to talk to. It has. We've loved having you. So, friends, remember to go and purchase your copy of Laura's brand new book. And continue to follow her work um, via her website. And there are many more offerings in addition after you're hooked on the gifts that Laura has from her new release. Go and check out all of her other offerings, her several other books. 
So thank you again, Laura, for joining us this evening. Yeah. And if you if you want to tell your own story, mm. you know, if that's part of your dream, I could help you with that too. So mm. um, if you're a writer or a fledgling writer or an aspiring writer, or you have a book that you want to finish, um, come to lauradavis.net and you could check out those kind of offerings as well. Yo, that was our show. Thanks for listening to Permission to Be. Um, thank you to our guests. So if you want more information, head on over to permissiontobepodcast.com to check out the show notes. Get some more information on our guests that we post over there. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating. If there's somebody that you want to see on this podcast telling their story, we also want to hear from you. So make sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, Permission to Be Podcast, and we'll see you soon.